Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. It's uh, good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So let's, uh, if you're able, stand to your feet. Let's give God some praise.
God for our worship team and this beautiful music. Well, good morning. Will you pray with me? Good morning, Father. Lord, we praise you for being the everlasting God of the universe. From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, Lord, there is none beside you. When I am tired and exhausted, you are awake and working. When I am weak, you are strong. When I don't know what to do, you have a plan. Nothing surprises you. While I worry about the future, you are already there. Thank you for being our loving savior and so sovereign God. Thank you, Lord, for our veterans. Thank you for their unwavering dedication to our country and freedom. Cause us to be a community that lifts up our servicemen and women in prayer, but also who provide tangible support through baby baskets and care of our own veterans and our congregation. Forgive us when we forget who you are, when we withhold love to others, when we exercise our sovereignty over what is rightfully yours, when we make decisions in haste based on biased facts and human knowledge, when we refuse to forgive and are quick to judge, when we fail to ask you to bless us with your wisdom that provides illumination of your perfect will. Lord, calm our fear. There are so many uncertainties in this broken world, whether it be ongoing war, dishonest public servants, and economic uncertainty, scary medical diagnoses with illness that lingers, broken relationships, and the transition of our church. Lord, you are already there. Jesus, you take sovereign control over all the uncertainty in this world. Remind us that our strength is small and our needs are great, but you are powerful. Remind us that you provide faith-building opportunities for us to expand our trust and love for you. Cause us to focus more on you and less on the struggles we encounter daily. When the winds blow and the waves threaten to overtake us, help us look and listen for you saying, it is I, do not be afraid. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. 
If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we are so glad that you are here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out that Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. We have two wonderful Thanksgiving events just around the corner. Join us for our family Friendsgiving on Friday, November 17th at 6.30 p.m. All children, students, and parents are invited for evening of food, fun, games, and crafts. Please bring a side dish or dessert to share with the group. For questions and to RSVP, please email Connie at ljcc.org. If you're spending Thanksgiving alone or want to expand your small gathering, join us on Thursday, November 23rd to celebrate Thanksgiving together with the church community. Enjoy great food and conversations with old and new friends. For questions and to RSVP by November 15th, please email mike at ljcc.org. Well, this is a special day because we're gathered in God's presence for sure. Um, where two or three are gathered together in His name, God is among them. So you can be sure that the Lord is here today. But we're also in the midst of this worship service. Uh, we're going to be celebrating an expression of what we just sang about and a baptism. And so Marin, Jansma Jones, would you bring up your family, please? Mom, Ariane, Dad, Dave, Brother Ryland, oh my gosh, Grandfather Nils and Grandmother Sherry right here. So you want to st- we have you stand up on here. There you go. So everybody, this is Marin. Can you say hello to Marin? Okay, you're among friends. And so she is six years old, and she's been driving her mom and dad crazy wanting to get baptized. No. She hasn't been driving them crazy at all. She's been talking about it, and they said, well, that's a really great idea. Let's talk more about it. And so they've been talking about that with her, and she knows exactly why she wants to be baptized. And then we got together and talked, and it was a fascinating conversation, as you can imagine. Anybody with a name like Marin is a fascinating person, and you are that, Marin, for sure. So let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Is this one confident young lady? Uh, do you want to be his disciple and know his will and, and obey him and, and give people a reason for the hope that you have in him? Yes. And why do you want to be baptized? Because I want to keep following Jesus. I think that says it up, sums it up pretty well, don't you? So that's fantastic. I, I hope that in this baptism, what baptism is, of course, is a person saying, I want to die to me and live in him. I want to receive the gift of salvation that God alone can provide. I want to put my faith in Him. I want to receive the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of, of a saving relationship with Him that's forever, that no one and, and no thing can separate me from His love. Uh, baptism is a declaration of our faith, but it's actually a confession of our faith. We don't stand up and say, you know, I'm worthy of being baptized. We say, God has counted um, me as a beloved child, and so I confess my absolute need for his absolute grace. And we don't know what Marin will grow up to be, but I have no doubt there's a lot of options for you. There's so many things you could do. Uh, you're, you're intelligent, you're creative, you're fun to be with, you've got a great family. But the best thing that we hope that you will be is a, a fully developed, highly functional follower of Jesus. That when people get to know you, they say, something's different about Marin. And they're going to say, Marlon, what is it about you besides being this great person you are? And you're going to say, it's because uh, I follow Jesus. So that's why we're here to recognize that and to confirm that in baptism. And baptism then becomes not only something that we experience, uh, receiving uh, that gift of God's confirming salvation and the abiding presence of his Holy Spirit, it's also a teaching moment. So if you have been baptized, this is an opportunity for you to reflect on, so what's happened since that baptism? Are you, are you actually living into it and living out of your baptism? 
Is it a formality for you, or is it actually the formula out of which you live? Uh, and if you haven't been baptized, if you're even trying to sort out where am I in this whole journey with Jesus, uh, this is a teaching moment for you uh, to hear from Mara and to see what we're doing here that you might say, you know, I think I need to be baptized. Because everybody who confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior is called to be baptized. It's not an optional uh, check the box if you're interested. It's part of our public declaration of our faith in Christ. Now, when we baptize infants, what we're saying is they're, they're part of this covenant, and at some point they will confess their faith. In this case, the confession of faith and the confirmation of that faith uh, happen simultaneously. So reflect on your own baptism, and certainly if you haven't been baptized, uh, let us know if you'd like to be baptized. And uh, like Maron, you'll find you're standing in front of a bunch of very friendly-looking people with big smiles on their faces uh, celebrating this moment with her. Now, one final thing is that we, we baptize in lots of different modes. We baptize in the ocean. We baptize in pools, uh, hot tubs. We've done it at the beach. We used to do it at the children's pool, but it got too funky with the, uh, the sea lines down there. Um, and we baptize here in the sanctuary. It, it all counts. It's, it's water. It's only water, but because Jesus is in this moment, it's, it changes everything. And so it's not the mode that we focus on. It's a confession of faith and God's response to that confession in, in this sacrament. A sacrament is a spiritual reality made clear to our senses. Is it the magic of the water or the mode, or the place? No. It's the meaning and the purpose, the magnificence of the living God saying, I will live in you and you will live in me. So Marin, stand over here. Marin Jansma Jones, child of God, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we commit this young lady to you. We recognize you work in her. Even at this young and tender age, Lord, she can articulate her love for you, her belief in you, uh, the reason for the hope that is in her. We thank you, Lord, for the faithful witness of her mom and dad, her grandparents, her brother, uh, Sunday school teachers, uh, friends who have influenced her, teachers at school. We thank you, Lord, for all the people who have spoken to, into her life that have helped her to come to this point of wanting uh, to confirm her faith in baptism and confess her faith before uh, the body of Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you'd give her everything she needs to live into this incredible moment and that this would be the momentum from this moment that would guide her through her whole life with you and forever. So we pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. God bless you, Maren. Can I help you get down? You want to get down here? Wow. Well, we have been asking, uh, looking at seven, seven questions uh, this fall. Uh, seven primal questions. Was it something I said? Why are you leaving? I mean, no. <laughs> have a great time in Sunday school oh. seven questions uh, that everybody asks consciously or unconsciously we live out of these questions basically even if we don't articulate them we live out of these seven questions am I safe, secure, loved, wanted, successful, good enough do I have a purpose in life and we did a series of those we took a deep dive in what the Bible says about these uh, questions and theologically that is what do we see in the bible that allows us to actually apply in our lives that's what theology does it says that let's take the content of this foundational text the bible the word of god and let's not read into it a meaning that isn't there let's read out of it the meaning that is there and then uh, and personalize it and appropriate it in our own lives so that we can embody the word of god and live under the authority and the power of the word of god the authority and the power of the Word of God is the Lord, who is the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. So we don't honor and worship a book. We honor and worship the Lord, uh, who has revealed things to us in this book that we would not know otherwise. So the answer to this question, am I safe, secure, loved, wanted, successful, good enough, do I have a purpose in life, is yes. Yes, it's a resounding yes in Christ. In Christ, it's a Yes. In Christ, it's yes, and nothing else will satisfy. That's a bold, outrageous comment in our culture. It's a challengeable, mockable assertion to make in our culture. 
Oh, give me a break. That sounds so narrow. That sounds so exclusive. Well, if there's only one person who can provide it, I guess that would be narrow and exclusive. But it's universal, and that it's for everybody. Everybody is invited to this feast. Everybody is invited uh, to this fellowship. Everybody is invited to be part of the body of Christ. For God so loved the entire world that he gave his son so that nobody would perish. Uh, whoever has the son has life. And apart from the son, we're yearning for life. And we can fill it with all kinds of things. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. You see, there's no substitute for God. Everything we want, everything we need, begins with him, continues with him, and, and concludes with him. In this life and beyond, uh, it's all about him. Uh, but, but life in this world obscures that. And we get confused about that. But the Word of God tells us this. James 1.17 says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Everything that's good, everything that's good, everything that's perfect, in this case, perfect means not just without blemish, it means it takes us where we want to go. It perfects us, it completes us, it gives us that deep satisfaction uh, that we yearn for. John says it this way in uh, his first letter, I mean, his gospel, first chapter. From the fullness of his grace, God has blessed us with every blessing. Out of the overflow of who God is, he fully funds everything we need. Uh, then in his first letter, First uh, John 3, 1, uh, John said it this way. See how the Father has lavished his love on us. That's sort of a decadent word, isn't it? Lavish. When somebody lavishes something on you, you feel overwhelmed. You might say, oh, gosh, it's too expensive. How many times have you heard that said? Uh, if you give somebody a gift, they, oh, you should have done that, especially if it's your, your mom. She's thoroughly happy, excited, loves the gift, but says, you shouldn't have done this. Uh, okay, fine, I'll take it back. Well, no, don't be, no, no. I, the lavish love uh, that, that, in a sense, wants, makes us think, I'm not worthy of this. How could you? This is just so expensive. Don't do this. Uh, you know, this is what great stories are made of when people are giving love lavishly, not to impress, but to bless. Lavish, not in the sense that it's trying to compensate for the emptiness that really exists there, but rather out of the fullness of that relationship. This is what I want to do to honor you and bless you. So, this is a beautiful statement. See how the Father has lavished his love on us. He's not stingy, he withholds no good thing. I've, I've thought of this many times when I'm going through a very difficult time or I'm talking to people going through difficult times and, and they're wondering, why am I going through this? Why is this happening? Uh, sometimes they can say, well, I did this, I shouldn't have done that, but often it's just that, why, why, why? And then the question I ask myself and I, I find a, a, the right time to ask, the right way to ask this of other people, do you think God would withhold any good thing from you? And of course, the answer is, you know, it answers itself, well, no. No, it's just that I'm feeling like something's being withheld that I yearn for and want. So Thomas Aquinas, maybe you know that name. Thomas Aquinas <clears throat> is one of the most brilliant people um, who walked the earth, basically. Uh, there's a bunch of them uh, in different fields. But in terms of people who have shaped the way that we think, uh, people like uh, uh, Augustine in the 4th century, uh, Augustine, we, you might pronounce it that way, but Augustine uh, was one of those shapers. How do we deal with life as it is? Out of, the, out of the revelation of God, how do we deal with life that compensates for all the factors in life, that addresses everything, doesn't hide from those hard questions or those hard issues? Augustine lived in a time when there was massive foment, uh, politically, socially, uh, spiritually, in every way. All these uh, heresies, people saying, well, Jesus couldn't possibly have been God, or Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that we're sinners, and that he's the Savior, and, and on and on and on. And so Augustine was one of those people who spoke into uh, the times he lived in. To this day, it resonates. Uh, Augustine's famous book, The City of God, The Confessions of Augustine, to this day will rock your world if you read them. If you read them today, uh, you'll say, gosh, it's as if the ink is still wet. These, these are still live issues. So Aquinas, like Augustine, now Aquinas in the 13th century, <clears throat> was called the angelic teacher because he was this sturdy guy. Uh, they called him the ox. Uh, he came from a very wealthy family in Italy, and he felt the need. He, he went to the university and then uh, 
came to know Christ in a way that he said, I really want to devote my life to serving Christ. And so he became a monk, he became a priest. And he was very quiet, very smart, but very quiet. So uh, his, his schoolmates would call him not just the ox, but the dumb ox. And dumb in this case doesn't mean not smart, it means dumb like quiet, silent, the silent ox. And one of his professors said, you might call him the dumb ox, but people will hear from him. People are going to hear from him. And so he was a brilliant scholar. And uh, like Augustine, he wanted to take on the biggest issues. And so <clears throat> he, wrote, he wrote a book, Summa Theologica, that, that to this day, people read it and say, what a work. Because it points us to Christ. It doesn't point us to uh, now St. Thomas Aquinas. Just like Augustine's work didn't point us to Augustine, we don't say, oh, what a great writer. We say, oh, what a great God uh, that this writer is describing. And open up doors and windows for us to see the magnificence of God's kingdom and the, and the practical nature of it in everyday life. So these weren't people who lived in ivory towers. These are people who worked in ivory towers, and worked in libraries, and worked in, in, in uh, the, the finest academic institutions of the day. But they, they, they lived to speak to the people uh, that they loved and cared for. So it's, so it's powerful when you think about God raising up people like this. In our, own, in our own day, you might say, well, Tim Keller was that. C.S. Lewis, not a theologian, but C.S. Lewis, uh, God used him in that capacity. You can hardly go to a church when somebody isn't quoting C.S. Lewis. Uh, people like N.T. Wright. Um, N.T. Wright is probably one of the most influential theologians walking the earth today. Uh, and so you, you have these people who aren't uh, writing something that is deviating from Scripture or distracting us. They're, they're pointing us to the Word of God in a fresh way in the times in which we live. Now, I'm spending this much time on it because, first of all, if you're not reading the Bible, you're, you can't be part of the conversation. The Bible is a foundational text. If you're not reading it, you're robbing yourself of true knowledge that will integrate all the knowledge you possess, correct knowledge you possess, and confirmed knowledge you possess. And likewise, then, as we read uh, the Bible, and then we work out the implications of that, we're reading other books that help us not correct the Bible, but help us understand where do we go with this. People like Dallas Willard, if you, uh, you might be familiar with that name. Dallas Willard, for 48 years, was the head of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. To this day, he died about, oh, eight years ago. To this day, he's one of the most well-read uh, philosophers and theologians in the, in the church, you ask any pastor, what do you think of Dallas Willard? They go, oh my gosh, he's amazing. And to be in the presence of Dallas Willard was to be in the presence of somebody who had this incredibly calm presence uh, that, that, that made you feel like, I want to know something. You know, I want to, I want to learn, I want to grow. So this is where a person who's going to be growing in their faith is going to ultimately go. Learning what the Word of God has to say and wrestling with the implications of it. And then... Uh, engaging in a conversation with people who are writing theologically in a way not to obscure the text or to compromise the text or dilute the text, but to, but to bring it out so we can see the power of it in our own day and age. You with me on this? So this means you have an assignment. You need to become a student of the Word of God, if you're not already, and then a student of, of theology. It's not so you can impress people with what you know. It's so that you can bless people with what you know. And so here, here's, the, here's the big point of this. Uh, Aquinas said that if we don't resolve these questions, he didn't speak specifically to these seven questions, but he's talking about the, the, the issues that are, are attacked these questions in all the work he did. He said if we're not answering these questions in Christ, we will substitute things for Christ. So if you're not answering the question, am I safe, am I secure, am I loved, am I wanted, am I successful, am I good enough to have a purpose in life, you're going to live into these questions and live out of these questions. But they'll be so unconscious, you'll unintentionally live out of them, constantly going for stuff. And you wonder, why do I do what I do? Why do those people around me do what they do? They're, a they're acting and, and functioning out of one of these questions. And because they haven't got an answer to it, what they fill this with are four things. Four things. Wealth, pleasure, Power and honor. Honor as in, I, I want to be recognized. I want influence. I want, I, want, I want people to look up to me. So Aquinas said that wealth, power, 
uh, wealth, pleasure, power, and honor can become substitutes for God. And so what we're going to be talking about, we started last week, uh, Randall Tonini did a great job talking about wealth. What does that mean? And we were talking about the wealth that lasts. Uh, today we're going to talk about the pleasure that truly satisfies. Uh, next week we'll talk about the power that, that blesses. And then we'll finish up the series uh, at, at the end of uh, November, talking about the honor that glorifies God. Why? Because these are, these are God-given things, wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. These are not bad things. But they're, they're, they're unworthy substitutes for the God who, who alone can give us wealth that lasts. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put your wealth there. Your treasure is where your heart is. The one who wants to give us true pleasure that ennobles us, uh, doesn't uh, destroy us. The power that blesses, not power that corrupts and destroys and crushes, uh, but lifts up and the honor that comes out of uh, vulnerability and humility uh, that reflects the glory of God. So I want to <clears throat> frame this by looking at uh, Psalm 16 with you. Uh, Psalm 16 uh, uh, is, is a powerful statement, uh, really, of the source of pleasure, uh, of the source of all these questions, safety, security, being loved, wanted, successful, good enough, having a purpose in life. And so it's, it's David... And he says this, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Am I safe? Yeah, I'm safe in God. Keep me safe in you, my God, for in you I take refuge. Now this, so this is written by somebody who needed refuge, who had real enemies who could really hurt him, do damage within the nation. He had outside the nation real enemies. He had the enemies inside of him percolating all the things that he was tempted to do. Uh, and so he says, I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, David had in his possession pretty much every good thing you could have. And then his son, Solomon, had even more of every good thing you could have. And so He's, he's giving this incredible confession. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And we're going to unpack this as we, as we go, but uh, I want to just give you the, the psalm as it is. He, he says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. What does that mean? I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. He's saying, I have... I have my peeps in the land are the people who take God seriously. These noble people who have lifted their eyes to the Lord have not substituted uh, worshiping anything in place of the Lord. Remember, David comes from a long line of people who worshiped everything but the Lord. Uh, David was the king of a people who shortly after um, Solomon died would start worshiping all kinds of things. They would cast them into exile and captivity. So he's saying, I have friends. I have people I want to be with. I have people who I'm doing life with. Do you have people in your life who you're doing life with who you say, they're noble. They might be humble people. They might be modest people. They might not have much. They might be fabulously successful and wealthy. And yet there's a nobility that comes out of humility that gives them credibility. And you see, these are the people uh, I know have a strong vertical relationship with God. And they have a strong horizontal relationship with other people. They're not holier than thou. But they recognize the holiness of God that allows them to be who they are. And not project an image that people say, oh, you're so holy, you're so noble. But actually is authentically who they are. And when you get close to them, you realize this is who they really are. So David is not only saying, oh, Lord, you are the one. And look at, I have this strong vertical with you, but look at all these people that I can turn to and be in community with. Now, these are, these are descriptions of, of, of a pleasant life, an enjoyable life. Wouldn't you agree? It doesn't get any better than this. I have this incredibly wonderful relationship with the living God, and I have a relationship with people who love living with the living God. This is, this is the source of pleasure and enjoyment. And then he goes, to say, goes on to say, those who run after other gods will suffer. Anything less is less. 
There's no substitute for the real thing. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more, and I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. I'm not going to give sacrifices to those gods. I'm not going to pray to them. I'm not going to turn to them. Because he had confidence in God. Do you have confidence and clarity in, in God? Or do you find it necessary to hedge your bets? Of course, I, I, I'm a very spiritual person. I, I believe in God. But man, my horoscope, it just it, it's amazing how it just dials right into... Or, you know, I do this or I do that and I have my crystals, I have my, you know, uh, or I, I have this. Or best of all, I have this account with Charles Schwab. And uh, every day, I, five times during the day, I look at it and I just want to be sure that I'm okay. And I, you probably don't know anybody like this, but if you ever meet somebody like this, there's something that they're hedging their bets with because certainly God alone wouldn't cut it. And that's not to say that I, I believe in God, I don't need a job, I don't need to work, I don't need... No, it's saying, because I, I am in Christ, secure and safe in Him, I have a purpose in life, and I don't need to worship anything that else, because anything else is something less. And so he says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You are enough and more than enough. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. This is where, again, where Jesus you know, echoes this by saying, don't store up wealth where moth and rust thieves and undermine it, destroy it. You know, store up your treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So David is saying, this is my heart. My boundaries aren't, aren't holding me back from life. These boundaries are protecting me from going off the cliffs in life. And my inheritance is the abiding presence of the living God. That I can't outgrow. And no one can rob me of. And so he says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. You see, when we are taking in content that's opening our heart and our minds to the Lord... It, it works its way into our, our unconscious even as we sleep. You know that. You know that. And when you wake up in the middle of the night nervous about something, anxious about something, remembering something you'd forgotten during the day, oh, the breakthrough solution to the big problem you've been working on. And, and those aren't moments just to feel despair, though that is often what we feel in the middle of the night. Uh, it's a time to then say, Lord, thank you for waking me up and reminding me that I need you, that I have you, that I can turn to you. And so I keep my eyes always on the Lord, he says. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. I don't know about you. I, I, um, I like contemplation. I like thinking. I spend a lot of time in solitude working on ideas and things and writing stuff. But I'm an activist. I'm an, I'm an extrovert. And uh, I, I feel like uh, antsy if I'm not doing something. Do you ever feel that way? You know, I, I, there's stuff to be done. I need to do stuff. I need to accomplish things. Or I need to, you know, and, and so you, if, you, if you can relate to that at all, uh, you know what it's like when you finally can detach and disengage and feel a calm sense of, I don't have to do anything. I noticed, in, I, I, at first I noticed this, um, when we lived, uh, I worked and lived in Newport Beach, and I, there's no more beautiful place short of San Diego than Newport Beach, and yet I was responsible for a bunch of stuff there. And so I had to get out of Newport Beach. I, and I think, I've got to get out of town. It's like, this is ridiculous. This is a first world whiny moment. Yeah, I'm with you, man. We've got to get out of here. It's Newport Beach. Get out of this place. Well, only because once I got out, I could walk anywhere. It didn't have to be fancy. It could be very simple. I was not responsible for anything in Bishop, California. Or Bridgeport, California. Or the backcountry in the High Sierra. Or I was not responsible for one thing. 
And so I could just kind of unwind, and, oh, great, you know, a book can do this for you. A movie can do this for you. This is what David is talking about. My heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body rests, but rests not in a sense of insecurity. Oh, no, what have I left undone? What do I need to do? But rather, I'm here with you. I can be in the presence of the people I'm with, of God, uh, in this beautiful place. And um, that's powerful. I don't know about you, but me, that's worth a zillion dollars to me. That's so powerful to not have that anxiety that makes you feel like i got to get something done. I'm looking past the people I'm with because I'm looking at something I have to do. And why does he have this feeling? Because he says this, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. I'm not a dead man walking. I'm not a dead person trying to convince myself that I'm alive. There's a lot of good people who are dead people walking. Because their whole life is lived on this treadmill of, I, I need to do more, I need to do more. Now, if you're a person who's alive in Christ, you can do more and do all kinds of things and thoroughly enjoy them. Uh, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the, the famous Dane, um, he wrestled with this because he came out of this Christian nation that had a lot of assumptions and complacency about what that meant. And as he came to know Christ in a very profoundly personal way, he said, I I'm, I'm feel like I'm a, I'm a foreigner in my own culture. Because <clears throat> I see all the, and he was a wealthy, he was a wealthy guy. And, and he said, you know, I, uh, the aesthetic challenges, everybody is going to the next event, the next experience. They could buy anything, they could do anything. He wasn't denigrating that, he wasn't c criticizing that. He just said, but there's no there there once they get there. It's just of this, it's just of that. If you put anybody in totally luxurious uh, situations long enough, at some point it just it becomes wallpaper. You'd say, well, I'd like to try that just to test that theory. You know, but, but you have tested this theory. At some point you've done something that you had ac wanted access to and you got that access, you got that experience, you got the time, you got the whatever, and you said, you know, this is really great and everything, but that's it. Once it's done, it's done. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Why? Because God wants to give us life in all its fullness, abundant life, defined by him, not by advertisers, marketing people. And if you're a marketing person, I'm not knocking you. Uh, I'm just saying, at some point, what are we marketing? Well, I, I market beautiful, life-changing experiences. I don't think so. This was a beautiful, life-changing experience. Uh, going on a cruise is not a life-changing experience. It's a life-enhancing experience. It's certainly enjoyable. Uh, eating in a beautiful restaurant. I mean, gosh, the, the aesthetic stuff. If you're not aesthetically alive, you're missing out on a big chunk of life. If you don't appreciate art and beauty, if you think it's uncool to care about fashion or art or design, you're missing out on a big chunk of life. All I'm saying to you, though, is those aren't life-changing. Those are life-enhancing, stimulating. They will not change your life. You can put the most gorgeous uh, outfit on a corpse and it's still dead. So this is what David is saying. You don't relegate me to the land of the dead. I get to be in the presence of the living. This is a very big deal. Because Kierkegaard also discovered not only these people living at an aesthetic level, I've got to do all these things for my life to make sense. He said there was a whole bunch of other people who were Danes who said, no, I want to be a good person and an ethical person. And what, how do you criticize good ethical people? We live right now in the most virtuous time of the United States history, according to some people, because they're signaling that virtue every day. They're telling you how awesome they are. And if they have a view, it's an awesome view. If you don't, you are less than awesome. You're despicable. And it's a bizarre thing. We have all, this pe all these people saying, I'm living ethically, and that's why we should get to do this, 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 and this. You go, oh my gosh, those, aren't, those don't sound like ethical things to me. Those don't sound like life-enhancing things to me. No, but they're right, and I'm right. So Soren Kierkegaard was saying, gosh, there's people who are ethical, but there's still an empty void there not being addressed. And he could say this because he was one of those aesthetic people, and he was one of those ethical people. And on this journey with Jesus, he finally landed at a place where he said, you know what it means to be really alive? It's not being aesthetic or ethical. It's being alive in Christ, who then, when I have these aesthetic 
experiences, I see them in the context of the one who created all good things. When I yearn for goodness and to be a good person, I see it in the context of the one who is righteousness defined. You see where this goes? All of a sudden, we're not rejecting aesthetic things or ethical things. We're saying, I get to understand them in the proper context. And so this is what David is hinting at and speaking to. You make, uh, he says, um, you will not let the faithful, your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. And if the path of your life is taking you through a beautiful home, beautiful fashion, beautiful experiences, beautiful cultural things, thank God for that. But the path of life is the one that he leads us on, leads us through, because we're in him is what gives us the, the deep satisfaction that we yearn for. It's not yet another great meal. It's not yet another great musical experience. Uh, you walk out of a Taylor Swift concert, I'm sure you had a phenomenal evening, but it did not change your life. Because at some point, somebody will say to you 25, 30 years later, do you still need to dress like Taylor Swift in 2023? What? <laughs> that was the most time I ever felt alive. Okay, but there's other things. Move on. This is what David is saying. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, this thing is dripping with pleasure. Pleasure is the ultimate fulfillment of the goodness of God. Enjoyment is, is, is an expression of that. There's so many things that are enjoyable, but the deep pleasure comes from God alone. And I'm not just saying religious things are the things that make us feel pleasure. I'm saying it's everything can make us feel pleasure if we are, if we are paying attention to what God is doing in us. The smallest things will cause you deep pleasure and, and deep enjoyment. You'll, you'll be scratching your head saying, I could have never thought this would bring so much joy to me. So, so where do we go with this? Uh, three points. The first one is this. God created a good world filled with his goodness that brings us pleasure. God created a good world. You see, this is in Genesis 1 and 2. Filled with his goodness that brings us pleasure. And pleasure is a gift from God. So I ask you the question, what brings you pleasure? What do you take pleasure in doing? I, I'm, I'm going to venture to this uh, guess. I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to be far off. That the things that, that you find pleasing and you take pleasure in doing always involve people at some point. People you're with, even if you're not doing the same thing at the same time. But if you just go to an event, if you go to a place, if you go, if you're flying first class around the world, if you're on a cruise, if you're driving in your new awesome car, if you have the best outfit you've ever worn on, all those things are fantastic things because they express God's goodness and creativity in, in human beings. But unless there's people connected to it, it doesn't really have the full impact. Not that you want to show off, you just want to show up. You want to be with other people. Say, oh my gosh, did you see that? That's why when he says back up here, um, I see the holy people who are in the land. They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. When you go to some awesome thing, do you notice how quickly and easily you make friends? If you're in some incredibly neat situation, you start talking to the people around you that you don't even know. You go, could you, wow, that was, did. and what's happening? You're bonding with people around some amazing event. People you don't know. But somehow that event puts you in a place where you're open to those people because they're also experiencing the same thing. And now you're in this little mini community. Do you, do you agree with this? Do you see that this is powerful? Even the, an introvert's going, I don't want to talk to anybody, but I'm just stoked to be with all these people. This is what David is talking about, what God's word tells us. Pleasure is a gift from God. Pleasure is a physical, emotional, spiritual experience of happy satisfaction and enjoyment in the context of relationships. It's why, okay, let me give you this, my little theory on conversation. Uh, I like to talk. News to you, I know, but <laughs> if you just talk about people, that gets old. If you just talk about events and ideas, uh, 
that gets old. But if you talk about life and things that matter the most to you in the context of people, ideas, and events, you have rich conversations. People are involved in the conversation. Events get addressed. Ideas come up. But it's, there's something going on there that's deeply relational. Why is that so important? That's because God is relational. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have access to the Trinity because, they, because Jesus gives us that access. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're invited into a community called the Body of Christ. Organizationally, institutionally, we call it the church. The ecclesia, the people called out. And then the people who were sent forth. So the Bible reveals that the source of authentic enjoyment and pleasure is God-quality life. You'll see that God is at the center of it, at the heart of it. It's something inherently good and pleasing that moves us to delight and gratitude. And that's why he says, I will praise the Lord. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. There's no downside to authentic pleasure. It restores us, renews us. There's no regrets to authentic pleasure. Let that sink in. Authentic pleasure. No, you, have, you don't have to apologize for having a great time. There's no regrets for having a great time. It doesn't cause shame or use and abuse people or products or lead to addiction or disease. That's why we have the phrase guilty pleasure. Uh, it's a guilty pleasure. Sometimes we trivialize that. Oh, chocolate. I'm eating chocolate. It's a guilty pleasure. No, chocolate is not a guilty pleasure. Adultery is a guilty pleasure. Gossip is a guilty pleasure. Fomenting conflict where there doesn't need to be conflict is a guilty pleasure. You take pleasure in doing something that you know is inherently wrong. That when you get caught, you're going to say, oh, my bad. Schadenfreude. I love that word. Schadenfreude is a guilty pleasure of seeing somebody fumble and fall. Their hubris, that pride that led to that fall, connects to our schadenfreude. Oh, man, look at that. They got what they deserved. A guilty pleasure. We shouldn't rejoice in somebody else's fail or, or pain. But authentic pleasure pleases the eye, the palate, the body, the mind, the heart, and the soul. You never have to apologize if you say, I think that is a beautiful design of whatever, or that food, the way you did those vegetables, what you did with that, or that art, or that. Don't, don't apologize for those things. If somebody criticizes you for being aesthetically alive, don't apologize for it. But if they're saying, hey, I get that, I love that about you, but I notice it kind of veers into idolatry. It's the thing you worship. What's wrong with that? Well, because there's a better thing to worship. So the first thing is God created a good world filled with his goodness and brings his pleasure. The second thing is this, the gospel, the good news of, of God coming into the world to restore it and redeem it. The gospel restores and right-sizes our capacity for authentic enjoyment and pleasure. What, how does the gospel do that? It says, hey, sex with indiscriminate people hooking up uh, does not lead to pleasure. It leads to uh, despair. Now that you know Christ, this is how you should function sexually. Whoa, I hadn't thought about that. The kid who's afraid to eat because I know I'm just going to become obese has to learn now under the grace of God that food is actually a gift from God and they can eat. The person who has power needs to learn how not to abuse it. You see where this goes. The gospel restores and right-sizes our capacity for authentic enjoyment and pleasure. So some followers of Jesus have assumed that enjoyment and pleasure is a pathway to corruption. Perhaps you grew up in a family like that. Now we never went to movies, my family. We never, we never danced. Uh, we never did this. We didn't do that. Uh, whatever it was, you know. Uh, or we don't go to church because there's crazy people in church. I mean, there's, however it worked out in your family, uh, that people have assumed that if you're really enjoying and having a great time, you're on the pathway to corruption. You're trivializing your faith. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, through our conversations, becomes a follower of Jesus. He goes off to college. Uh, we went to different colleges. He comes back. He'd been part of a very, 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 very uh, uh, authoritarian Christian group on his campus. To the point that it was, it was uncool in that group to, to laugh. 
or to goof off or have fun. So I hadn't seen the guy for months. We're getting together, and so we're laughing. I'm, I'm saying things, and he's trying not to laugh. I'm like, Dave, what is going on? He goes, well, you know, you know, and he couldn't explain it. I said, are you saying that laughter and goofing off is somehow unspiritual? He goes, well, yeah. I said, where'd you get that idea? He said, well, from these people who've been influencing me. Well, they've been influencing you in some really good ways, but I'm telling you, there's some baggage that is coming along with that. You are the most fun and creative guy I know. This guy was so fun and so creative. Uh, he was the most creative student body president our high school had ever had. He was just this, but now he's like really uptight, and, and he had to then come out of that. It took him a long time to come out of that, and when he did, it was awesome. Uh, it was just, he was, Dave was back, you know, and, and I, that's the beauty here, is that no sin, I mean, excuse me, uh, enjoyment and pleasure is not the pathway to corruption. Sin is the pathway to corruption. Sin is the pathway to corruption. You do bad things, you push somebody down and they get hurt and you're laughing, that's sin. That's not funny. You know, uh, you, you, you humiliate people and you're laughing, that's not funny. Authentic enjoyment and pleasure brings out the best in us. So if you are in a situation with people and it's not bringing the best out in you or makes you feel like you're being diminished, that's not a pleasant, enjoyable place for you to be. And if you feel the, the social peer pressure to be like that, you need to remove yourself from that. That's hard, though, because we so much want to be included. And so sinful pleasures rob us of authentic pleasure through numbing, destructive self-medication. What looks like an antidote to our weariness, our sadness, our boredom, our loneliness actually intensifies it. So we turn our internal chaos to the creativity and goodness of God who gives us his joy. That's, that's the antidote. Turning to the God who restores the joy to our salvation. When David had fallen miserably in sin, and now he's repented, and in Psalm 51 he's talking about his repentance and he says, Lord, restore the joy to my salvation. Final point is this. As we learn God's ways and walk in them, we experience the joy of the Lord. You know, you're, <laughs> you know uh, you're walking in God's ways when you experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you can have deep, deep belly laughs, you can just laugh with people about silly things. You can cry if you need to cry. You can take delight in small, insignificant things. You can be awed and overwhelmed by magnificent things. See, this is the freedom that the pleasure of God allows us to experience as the pleasure of his people. You see that? It's powerful. And so take time this week to reflect on what truly pleases God. Read through your Bible just randomly if you have to, but I mean, if, if, you know, read through the Psalms, for example. Read through the Proverbs, and you'll see the things that pleases God. And what pleases you and brings you joy? Ask yourself that. Are they, are they compatible or incompatible? If you're saying, I get great joy and pleasure out of this, and it's certainly not compatible with God, it's actually incompatible with His Word, how are you going to reconcile that? Are you aligning your view of pleasure with God's? That's a great way of asking that question. Another way of asking it, if you hung out with Jesus all the time, would you, do you think he'd enjoy the things that you're doing? Jesus, we're going to go do this. Or would you go, oh, whoa. Hey, Jesus, I'll be back in a couple hours. Wait right here. So I leave you with this. Uh, Paul, writing to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Right-size your understanding of what is truly enjoyable or truly um, pleasant. Wealth that lasts, pleasure that satisfies, power that blesses, honor that glorifies God. We'll continue this conversation next week. So Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've created us with a capacity for, for enjoyment and pleasure. We know, Lord, we'll never experience it fully in this life, but in this life, you want us to live as fully as possible given the vagaries and the craziness of this uh, fallen world that you are redeeming. 
So, Lord, help us to be wise and discerning in those things that bring us enjoyment and pleasure. Help us to be free enough to call things out as good, bad, right, wrong, that we could then not just be judges and spoil sports, but we could be people who bring hope and faith and ultimately love. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Well, let's wrap, our, uh, wrap up our time of worship uh, by, by singing. And uh, after that, I'm going to give you a benediction. If you want a prayer or for anything, go out to the prayer garden. If you want something to eat, go outside. If you'd like to take a short trip, a half a mile or so, uh, down Genesee to uh, Grace City Church, their service starts in a few minutes. Uh, we're gonna, uh, uh, Drake's going to caravan. Drake's back there with his hand up. We got maps uh, to go down to Grace City. If you want to go to Grace City and just be part of that worship service and see what's going on down there, we'll be giving you more and more updates about our, our, our wonderful partnership, uh, Baton Pass, uh, to Grace City Church in the weeks ahead. Uh, but let's right now worship him and present ourselves. Offer yourself to him in this time of worship.
But now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord give you everything you need to enjoy fully uh, the life he's leading you in. As you delight in him, as you delight in the forgiveness of your sins, the gifts of his spirit, the goodwill of his people, and the confidence that he is with you always and that nothing and no one can separate you from his love.